Welcome back to Sober Grind. We are live Sober again. Grind. As always, my name is Austin Armstrong. And my name is Pej. And we have another very special topic with an awesome guest today. We're going to be talking about crisis coaching, crisis intervention with our guest, Scott H. Silverman. So everyone, welcome Scott H. Silverman. Uh, Hi, you, Scott. If you have any questions, leave them in the, uh, the comments below. We'll come back to them and we'll address them live. So Scott, welcome to Sober Grind. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and a little bit about what you got going on? Yeah, well, thanks, guys. Uh, again, I'm Scotty Sobin. The reason I use the H is when you Google me, uh, there's a colleague of mine who is in Japan, and he gets a lot of my stuff, and he gets upset when I don't put my middle initial in. So, yeah, part of my personal brand as well. So, you know, I, I grew up here in San Diego. I'm in San Diego. I've uh, been in long-term recovery for a few decades, and I, I like to share that publicly and be open about it because I always believe there's help and hope. And that, you know, if a guy like me that, you know, used to be an unlicensed pharmacist can do it, uh, anyone can. <laughs> you so know, how long just, is long term? How long have you been sober? Uh, a little over 33 years. Wow. wow. Congratulations. Probably, old, probably older than both of you guys put together based on the tone of your voice. <laughs> I think when you got sober, I was just getting started. <laughs> there, there you go. Well, you know, and, and, it, and so much has changed, uh, not only in the world of, you know, substance uh, uh, consumption, but also substance abuse treatment in the, just the last decade. There's so many different, you know, turning points that we can, I'm sure, we'll talk about. So, you know, I got in the uh, business of... Uh, formal business license facility my partner Dwayne Donnelly and I uh, got certified by the state and you know we take insurance we're an outpatient program which you know means non-residential to people that don't know and we work very closely with sober livings and detoxes and residential treatment programs as well and you know my my attitude about treatment is one size does not fit all that's right and we try to meet our customers and I like to call them customers because that's what they are when they start right. and uh, hopefully become friends once they get going and, and my crisis coaching, which is kind of my soft virtual storefront, is a way for me to work with families. I've been doing that for decades with doing what I call, you know, soft interventions and working with families to help get their loved ones to the most and highest level of care possible. And I'm a subject matter uh, expert here in San Diego, which means I go on to local television, usually KSI, and talk about it. And whenever there's something topical, which unfortunately seems to be every hour now between DUIs and fentanyl overdoses and you know, raids at the border and uh, the things that are going on, legalization of marijuana, edibles, and the, you know, the poly drug issues that are taking place and, you know, in our country right now are just over the top. So I'm, I'm pretty busy just getting called by the media to talk about it. So I'm really excited to be here with you guys and have some real time to talk about real stuff. Uh, we're, excited, we're excited to have you. Uh, uh, I have a question for you. So you said soft interventions and then you, your role, obviously, as a crisis uh, coach, what, can you kind of elaborate a little bit more on when a crisis coach? Well, does that mean you go out and help people that are in some kind of a crisis? Uh, yeah, that's that's probably a straightforward way to kind of interpret it. And what I do is families will call me. There's somebody use the name Johnny. You know, Johnny's uh, you know hasn't been home in two days. Uh, just got a DUI. What do we do? So what I try to do is work with the family, and and I said soft crisis uh, interventions because. I believe the traditional interventions that have been done by the industry for decades really don't work. And it's pretty much an all or nothing. And what I try to do is educate the family, not that a traditional interventionist doesn't, mm -hmm. but I educate the family and I try to get between them and the issue. And then I become kind of like the, uh, the coach, if you will, and talk with the individual who's got the issue, deal with the family 
who's the you know bearer of the abuse that takes place from the individual who has the issue and then try to figure, find a way to set a path for each one of them and the individual who needs the highest level of care. And it's usually around substance abuse uh, that, and things that come from that are you know domestic violence, uh, behavioral issues, acting out, and all the inappropriate behaviors that you know I went through when I was under the influence and put my family through as well. So the soft part means it isn't all or nothing. It's really kind of meeting people where they're at and knowing how to ask somebody nicely, look, you need to really start listening and understand that you, you don't get a vote right now until we've all been heard. And once we're all heard, then we'll talk about options and opportunities. So do, do you, uh, when you're coaching them, are you basically, do you put it in their hands and just give them enough information to where they can actually do the intervention themselves and you're not like an interventionist sitting in the room? No, I, I, I use the term intervention in a different way. I call it soft. But no, I'm, I can either physically be in the room. A lot of my work is done by phone. Okay. And the reason for that is sometimes people will catch me either on some of the social media or if I you know, used to do some national work, they'd call me from anywhere and we could do a lot of work over the phone. Okay. And, and I don't really, what I try to do is take the place of what the family's trying to do. I try to talk to families all the time and say, look, you can't go on YouTube and do an intervention like you'd go on YouTube and maybe change a tire on your car. Right. This, this, this disease of addiction is complicated. Right. Talking right. to somebody who's under the influence is almost, you know, next to impossible till they've come down. Right. And when they come down, you have to be prepared. So what I try to do is tee it up for the family and let them know that there's options, again, and opportunities for them and hotlines they can call and, you know, different support groups that they need to go to. So before they try to do the intervention, uh, we talk about what an intervention might look like and to me it's more of a staged uh, you know sequence of events and a trajectory that the family works on and gets educated so you know you know how it is with the individual one the family that I get the most questions asked the number one question asked is how do I know if they're telling the truth and you know if their lips are moving they're not so when you tell a family that they all agree oh my god you're right. So then we talk about what happens next. I mean, how do we hit, how do we help somebody who absolutely believes they don't have a problem and they're going to lie, cheat, and manipulate because they want to hide that problem they have? And I'm obviously making some bold statements here, but my experience over the last few decades is it's pretty consistent. And if an individual does suffer from you know this disease of addiction and has other co-occurring issues, uh, generally the family has no idea how to deal with it. And what I've found is the addict or the alcoholic, they have no idea how to deal with sobriety or getting into treatment. So that's where I say, you know, you you don't get a vote yet until you listen because you have no idea. And if you did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And then that pretty much holds true for most of us until we, you know, kind of get the anesthesia out of our body and cognitively start to wake up a little bit and feel a little better about who we are and what's going on. And it takes years, in my opinion, to really have that true transformation. Scott, so in your opinion, so we've talked about interventionists and interventions in the show a couple times. I'd love to dive deeper into your role as a, um, a crisis coach. And when the parents first discover that there's a significant issue in, in a loved one, at what point do you feel in your experience should they reach out to you? Is it the first time that they discover that their child or loved one is using drugs or or is it is it a set of declining experiences what's what's your opinion on when they should reach out to someone like you well you know one of the things that 
rather than try, and I'm going to answer that question. It's a great question. I want to liken, because uh, I'd, I'd like to look at this disease, uh, if you will, like other diseases. For example, if somebody were displaying symptoms of diabetes, they would immediately go online, I would assume, in today's world, and say, Johnny looks like he's getting green around the gills. You know, um, Bonnie looks like she's got, you know, discoloration under her eyes. And they'd Google that and they'd find those symptoms. And then under those symptoms would be recommendations of what you do next. And that's what you do. For some reason with this issue with, with addiction and abuse, substance abuse, we tend to go, well, you know, they were sad. They, uh, you know, their, their father beat them up when they were kids. Uh, we weren't together as a couple. Um, his girlfriend broke up with him. You know, he's not doing well in school or he's an overachiever and he's not popular. We make up all these different excuses to justify the behavior. And what I suggest for families is to make the phone call immediately. Why would you want, why would you wait? Meaning, if an individual is losing weight, gaining weight, losing sleep, uh, loss of job, issues with relationships, behavior that's really not normal, uh, missing jewelry around the house, uh, you know, accidents in the car, getting arrested, those kind of behaviors, you don't, you know, it's like the old days I used to work with ex-offenders, they had a program called Hug a Thug. That's not what you do. You can't hug, you hug them and you love them. But you love them to wellness. You don't step back and let them abuse you when they're under the influence. And the next day, it's like, well, you know, I'll never do it again. Of course you won't. We believe you. Not really. So that's when the phone call should be made. Is you, Why would you wait? So I really encourage people to make the phone call, get educated, you know, talk to your faith-based leader, talk to your primary doctor, talk to a psychologist, talk to a clinician, you know, talk to somebody who knows a lot more about this than you do. And there's a lot of experts out there, you know, and I'm not a clinician, I'm not a doctor, I'm just someone who anecdotally and experientially has spent a lot of time working with families. And generally when I give advice, if it's taken, we work quicker. And if it isn't, they may not be ready. But when they call me back in three months and go, oh my God, how did they go from marijuana to cocaine and now he's smoking heroin and we have no idea how this happened. And I go, go back to our conversation three months ago and remember what we talked about. They, they, they hope they could love them to wellness. And you know what? It's a skill set most parents just don't get unless it's in their family and they've been through it. And even then, sometimes they're too close to that individual to be the one who can have an effect on them. That's, that's great advice. Uh, so what do you think? How do we get over this um, negative stigma as a, as a society to take more proactive approach towards getting that immediate help rather than putting it off? Well, I think that's a great question because the stigma, in my opinion, is what's preventing people from taking the appropriate action. Again, if if you and I were having this conversation, you said, what do you do with someone who broke their leg? There is no question about what you do. You take them to ER and, or to the doctor. They have an x-ray. There's an examination. The professional gives you the appropriate level of care you need. If it's a sprain, they wrap it up. If it's a cast that's needed, they put a cast on. So why would we look at this disease of addiction differently? So part of the destigmatization, in my opinion, is we don't wait for it anymore. Look, right now in our country, 15% of our population has an active addiction issue, 15%. Okay, that's a little over 45 million people. According to science, less than 10% of those will seek help, four and a half million people. And right now in our $40 billion industry, the four and a half million people that go to treatment, if they don't follow up with the treatment that they're getting, 
have a 95% chance of relapsing. And the 15%, going back to the first data point, that don't that go untreated will impact seven people every day negatively. So if you put the math together with that, that's 70% that get impacted negatively, 15% that have a problem, that's 85% of our country right now that is going to be exposed to something somehow, some way, today with this issue around substance abuse and mood-altering substances. And we're not even talking about, you know, texting and, you know, driving that's, you know, where you're not focused and distracted driving. We're not talking about suicide. We're talking about substance abuse. So how do we remove that stigma? For heaven's sakes, if we don't, you know, we're burying 240 people a day right now just with prescription drugs. So if you factor in the alcohol and the other medications people are taking or mood altering substances, it's almost north of 400 people a day. So it's a bit of why, an epidemic, right? Oh, I call it a pandemic. It's, you know, it's beyond. Yeah. I, so when you talk about removing the stigma, it's interesting to me that we still even have one because when you think about it, just prescription drugs alone at 240 people a day is a 9-11 every two weeks. Yep. It, it's a plane crash. You think every everyone day. would be awake to this, but so many people aren't. And the stigma so, is still there. Yeah. You know, no, I'm sorry, I missed that first part. Say it again. I think more people would, would be aware of this, especially with, with all the reports of overdoses and everything, but so many people are unaware, and there still is a major stigma attached to it. Right. You know, I think... I think logically people are aware of it. I mean, it's in the news today almost every half an hour. And you look at some of these cities back east where you get 30, 40, 50 overdoses in a weekend. I mean, right. just here in San Diego, last Thursday, there was an individual crossing the border who was caught with methamphetamine, cocaine, and fentanyl. Now, the fentanyl was dis disguised as Oxycontin, wow. which is really scary because Oxycontin has been that one medication that's been prescribed. For example, 2016, 200 and, was it 294 million prescriptions were written in 2016 of, of Oxycontin and other opiates. So what's, what's happening now is the manufacturers and distributors are disguising it as other things. And everybody wants to get opiates because they can't get them from the doctors easily used to. So now the manufacturers, mostly coming out of China, are making fentanyl look like Oxycontin. And fentanyl is deadly. You know, it's one, you know, I don't know, one hundredth of a milligram, the size of a tiny pin point, not a pinhead, a pin point, can kill somebody if it's taken that way. So, you know, to your point about you'd think we'd be smarter by now, mm -hmm. but, you know, and it was funny, they were interview interviewing the U.S. attorney, and she said, why would people take a narcotic that could kill them? And I'm thinking... Back in my day, when we were taking hallucinogens or mescaline or secondol or methamphetamine in big doses, we weren't thinking about how we might expire. We were just thinking about how we might get higher. Mm. Yeah. That was my brain. I mean, it may not be others, but that's the way my mind worked. And I think that's the part of the disease. So for the addict, you know, we have the disease. I have this disease. I won't speak for anybody else. So my disease is the disease of denial, the inability to feel feelings. But those other 70%, those family members, we have to help them overcome the stigma as well. Yes, absolutely. So I want to open this up to all of our viewers as well. 
now is an amazing time to ask any questions if you're if you or a loved one are going through anything uh, if you want more information please leave them in the comments below um, and we will get back to them shortly uh, let's just continue on um, you have any questions you can think of I was wondering when you said earlier uh, when it comes to you know providing help for people with addictions one size does not fit all can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. But before I do, do you mind if I throw my phone number in here? So if anybody sure, wants to call or text, yeah. text yeah. me directly. So, so again, it's Scott H. Silverman. My direct cell phone number is 619-993-2738. And I'll take anybody's call absolutely free for a few minutes. We'll talk about it. See if I'm a good fit. See if I can answer your question. See if I can point you in a direction. I don't charge a fee for that. And, you know, it's, again, 619 619- Nine nine three two seven three eight. So call me or text me or email me, and let's talk about how we can, you know, answer some of your questions directly and confidentially. So your question again was, um, I'm sorry, ask that again. Okay, so when you were talking about there's helping people with various problems, one size does not fit all. And I know that you guys offer in your IOP there's uh, MAT, and I kind of figure that right. that's kind of what you meant along those lines. Well, you know, and confidential recovery is our outpatient program, and I'm going to give you that number two is 619 It's an outpatient program here in San Diego. We're off of Miramar Road, and we have tracks in the morning and also at night for working people or individuals who want to seek help and want to do it in a very confidential way. Basically, what I mean by one size does not fit all, meaning someone might come in, and, and you guys have probably heard this too doing interviews, you know, oh, I don't like that God stuff I hear in meetings, or, you know, I don't have a higher power, or I'm an atheist or agnostic, and I don't mean to be cynical because those are individual beliefs. So we try to meet people where they're at. And there's a lot of people right now that are addicted to opiates. And when they get off of opiates, the withdrawal is painful physically and emotionally and mentally. And what we are able to do through medication-assisted treatment is sometimes people might need a little bit more than others to kind of, you know, detox off of, if you will, or decompress away from. Uh, and there's other medications out there like Vivitrol that's an opiate blocker and somebody who, you know, may need to wean themselves off of something meaning i don't want to quit completely so we try to work with them and obviously with marijuana being legal now um people can have it in their system and for you know there's a lot of science right now that's being studied around whether marijuana is better for somebody uh going through an opiate withdrawal than maybe suboxone or methadone you know or other things so i i try and our clinical team tries to be open with people and allow them to come in and I compare that to what I would call an abstinence-based uh, modality. For example, you know, the traditional anonymous programs um, don't want anybody on anything at all. And some people need a higher level of care. I mean, I grew up in an anonymous program where, you know, you don't take this, you don't take that. What if I'm depressed? Doesn't matter. You, you work the steps, you know, you call your sponsor, you go to more meetings, you do what you're supposed to do. And I think what we're finding is um, that way of looking at people doesn't necessarily fit for everyone so that's the idea one size doesn't fit all that we try to be open with people when they come to us with whatever's going on with them and address it appropriately personally and then put them into a group and then suggest they go to some support component and then give them options again and opportunities awesome that's great so we're we're running a little low on time so i want we've covered a, a ton of ground today um i want to ask you this um 
in your experience, if there's someone watching or listening to this, that they themselves are struggling with substance abuse addiction, what advice would you offer to them to seek help? Well, first of all, um, trying to do this alone is next to impossible physically and emotionally. And why would you want to try? So you do a couple things. One, if you don't know anybody who's been through it, you can go online, you can Google, you know, addiction specialist. Um, uh, you can go on psychologytoday.com and look people up in your area by zip code. There's hotlines. There are websites right now. You go, you can Google, I'm not sure I have a drinking problem. And, and you'll get all kinds of pieces of information that might be helpful. I mean, don't choose a treatment center per se until you've done some research. Because unfortunately, in this industry, there's a lot of people out there, I call them body brokers, if you will, or you know, human traffickers that will take your money and throw you in a room. And when your money's gone, they'll kick you out. And I hate to say it that way. But unfortunately, when you look at the news, you see a lot of that. So if you don't know what you're doing, ask for help. Those are the magic words. I need help. If you can find a way to ask those three words of somebody you trust and you care about, the odds are the path of change is right in front of you and you're actually already on it. That's amazing advice. Awesome. Pez, did you have any other follow-up No more questions. Thank you. We... Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We, we appreciate you. I actually wanted to point out when you said uh, type in ask an addiction or uh, addiction specialist, we have a, it's a great segue. <laughs> exactly. We have a Facebook uh, page called Ask an Addiction Specialist that's attached to this one. You can see it down there in the link area. You can push the link or you can just type in Ask an Addiction Specialist where um, at any given time, if you're struggling or if you have somebody uh, that you know that's struggling, come and ask a question there. We have professionals. We have people in recovery that can readily answer your questions. It's called Ask an Addiction, addiction Specialist. Plus the show... Uh, Sober Grind is not just a podcast and a live stream. It's uh, you know it's in, it's in different very areas. You can find it on Google Play and it's a movement. It's, it's everywhere. A movement. It's on Google Play. It's on <laughs> iTunes. It's on YouTube. Uh, you can just type in Sober Grind and look us up and see all of our past episodes or watch them or listen to them. And please leave a review. Uh, subscribe to the show. Let us know what you think. If you'd like us to preview something or if you'd like to actually be on the show, talk to us and. If you're in recovery and you've been sober for a while, we'd love to have you come on for like a testimonial. Yeah, we're always looking for inspiring recovery journeys and stories. So once again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so, so much for joining us on The Sober Grind. We will see you next week. Scott, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Sober Grind out. <laughs>